0: Hey, everyone. Before we start today's episode, I have one ask of my listeners. I've been doing some digging into how to grow the Inner Olympian, and one of the biggest ways I've found to grow the podcast is through show reviews. Reviews take less than 60 seconds, and they make a huge difference for podcasters like myself. Now, with that being said, it would mean the world to me if you could head on over to the Apple Podcast app and leave a review for the show. Thank you so much in advance. Now back to the episode. What am I holding on to? What am I afraid of? Again, and, and it does
1: come back to, like, I want to be better. And so the way to be better is to be vulnerable and ask people what they think about you. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the a-
0: Inner Olympian, Inner Olympian, Inner Olympian podcast. You, you, you're rocking with the man. You just put the needle. Hey everyone, it's Bladia Tamale. It's, it's hey, Kira. Hey, hey, everybody, Jared yeah. Hey,
1: everybody, it's Marissa
0: capizon continue here. Hey, everyone, it's Misha Powell. Hey. I'm Pierce LaPage. Hey guys, Alicia here. Hey guys, this is Tia Vettman. Hey guys, my name's Khadija. Make sure you check out the Inner Olympian podcast. I want you to head over to the Inner Olympian podcast. Check out the Inner Olympian podcast. Check out the Inner Olympian podcast. And I want you guys to check out the Inner Olympian podcast. I want you all to do me a favor and go check out the Inner Olympian podcast. you don't want to miss it, you won't regret it. You got to do it. What's going on everybody and welcome back to another episode of the Inner Olympian podcast where the goal is to inspire you and help you achieve the things that you actually want to achieve by tapping into your inner Olympian. My name is Chego McInday. I am a two-time Canadian Olympian and I'm your host. Hey listen, I believe that you don't need to go to the Olympics to be an Olympian. I believe that being an Olympian comes down to the way that you think, act and live and that everyone has the potential to tap into their inner Olympian by changing their mindset this is episode 41 and hey if this is your first time listening welcome to the show and thanks for listening for those of you who've been listening for a while now as always i want to give you a big shout out you guys are awesome thanks so much for all the love and the support it means a lot and i appreciate you all right i am super excited to have on the show today Canadian Olympian, 2008 bronze medalist, and current director of communications and media relations for the COC, that's the Canadian Olympic Committee, Tom Hall. Tom is a Canadian Olympian from Pointe-Claire, Quebec, and has represented Team Canada as a national sprint canoe paddler for almost 20 years. During his career as a sprint canoe athlete, he medaled at every international event that featured sprint canoeing, culminating with a Olympic bronze medal at the 2008 Beijing Olympics in the C1-1000 before retiring from the sport in 2012. Some of his career highlights include world junior champion in the C1-1000, 2006 world championship silver medalist in the C4-1000, two-time Pan Am Games medalist, one gold, one bronze, and of course the big one, the bronze medal at the 2008 Olympic Games in the C1-1000. Post-sporting career, he holds a master's of journalism from Carleton University and has been featured in many reputed media outlets such as Canadian Geographic, the Toronto Star, the Ottawa Citizen, and the National Post. Tom is also a respected leader in the Canadian sports system and has worked for over a decade to make the Canadian athlete journey as safe, fair, and healthy as possible. First as a volunteer and recently as a leader within athlete-focused organizations. He has held previous roles as the Executive Director of Athletes Can, that's the Association of Canada's National Team Athletes, National Manager of Game Plan, that's Canada's Total Athlete Wellness Program, and is currently the Director of Communications and Media Relations for the COC, the Canadian Olympic Committee. Uh, he currently sits on the board of directors of Canoe Kayak Canada, the Sport Information Resource Center, and the IOC Athlete 365 Career and Steering Committee. In this episode, we chat about his Olympic experiences dealing with uncertainty, career transitions, not taking things for granted, the Canadian sports system, athlete mental health, asking yourself the tough questions, overcoming insecurity, and a whole lot more. Super excited for you guys to hear this episode. This is a full circle moment for me, which we get into later in the show. Tom is no stranger to sharing his story and being vulnerable, and I'm really grateful for him, again, for sitting down and sharing his story and being so open to share his story with us, with me, and with you. I think the one thing that stood out for me in this episode was just having the courage to be better, not only for yourself, but those around you. It's not easy to be courageous. It's not easy to do those hard things that will put you outside of your comfort zone. It takes work and it involves you being vulnerable, asking yourself those tough questions, putting yourself out there, getting help when you need help, and not being afraid to in some cases be wrong or even sometimes look like you're taking steps back because at the end of the day what you're doing is really you're taking two steps back to be able to take four or five steps forward. So Big shout out to Tom. Thanks for sharing your knowledge and experiences, as well as your journey with us. Really appreciate it. And without further ado, here's Tom. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Inner Olympian Podcast. I'm really humbled to have uh, Tom Hall with me. And Tom? Tom. Tom, Tom. Tom is good. Yeah. Tom is good. Tom is good. <laughs> really honored to have Tom Hall with me on the show today. And and for many reasons, which I'll get into later on. But this is kind of like a full circle moment for me. And all kind of stems from an article that you wrote, Tom, in 2016, and the timeline of that article and how it kind of times up to uh, actually like right now. So, again, really honored to have you here um, and for you to take time out of your day to, to sit down and chat, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. For all my runners out there who are listening, in no way related uh, to, Brian Hall, although, I mean, stranger things have happened. Tom is a Canadian Olympian from Pointe-Claire, Quebec, and he's represented Team Canada as a national sprint canoe paddler for over 20 years. In terms of his sports career, he's a 1999 junior world champion in the C1-1000, 2006 world championship silver medalist in the C4-1000 two-time Pan Am Games medalist in won gold, one bronze, and also the big one, bronze medalist in the C1-1000 canoe event at the 2008 Olympic Games in Beijing, which is pretty cool. Um, Post-competitive, he's worked as the national manager of Game Plan, which is an organization that focuses on helping athletes not only perform better, but becoming well-rounded and make better transitions after sport. Um, He holds a Master's of Journalism from Carleton University, in Ottawa. Shout out to everybody listening in Ottawa and has extensive media and communications experience, you know, working with special projects and organizations such as Canadian Geographic, as well as many other private businesses and sports stakeholders. He's been featured, like I said, in things like Canadian Geographic, the Toronto Star, Ottawa Citizen, National Post. I think you get the picture. Currently sits on the board of directors of Canoe Kayak Canada and the Sport Information Resource Center, that's CERC as well as the IOC Athletes 365 Career and Steering Committee. And he was also previously the Executive Director of Athletes Can. Recently, I know this is a lot, recently, he was uh, named the new Director of Communications and Media Relations for the COC. So that's the Canadian Olympic Committee. And so um, first off, congrats on your new role. And again, thanks for for taking time out of your day to be here, Tom. I really appreciate it,
1: Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for that <laughs> lovely intro. Yeah, no, that's great. And and uh, I mean that's all accurate. I, I worked at Canadian Geographic for a long time, which is why that why I've got bylines there. I was an intern and then I uh and then uh, special projects editor there for for a number of years after I well, yeah, a couple of years after I finished my master's degree in journalism at Carleton. and it's a wonderful spot to wonderful spot to work. So
0: how did you I guess get involved in sport, specifically canoe kayak, and um, what led you to choose that? Although, uh, let me just preface this here because I know you have a family that you know is kind of involved in the sport, but I guess why canoe kayak? Yeah, I,
1: so my mom's family paddled a whole bunch. She's from Quebec City, and canoe kayak's a pretty old sport in Canada. I mean, some of the oldest clubs in Canada are about 140 years old. And they were really social clubs. So a good example of that is Balmy Beach Canoe Club outside of Toronto, well, in Toronto, uh, has Grey Cup titles to its name from like 1920-something or whatever, I I forget. But you look at the Grey Cup, Balmy Beach. So canoe clubs were really social clubs that were multi-sport clubs back in the day. Anyway, my, my mom's family, the Turco family from Quebec City, were all paddlers. So my mom grew up paddling and her sisters grew up paddling. And then when... I was about seven years old. She helped, yeah, I mean, a small, a relatively small role, but helped start the Point Claire Canoe Club. And at that time, my older sister was, we were all made members right away. My sister um, was pretty successful and went to the 93 Canada Games. I think they were in Kamloops. I think I'm getting that wrong. But in British Columbia, <laughs> one, of the, one of the K cities in British Columbia. And I just remember, you know, for kayak, so canoe kayak always go hand in hand. And I just remember seeing my sister's um, tracksuit, which in hindsight was hideous. But, uh, you know, as a, I forget what I was, a 10-year-old or something, I thought it was awesome. And so that, you know, that really inspired me to to paddle. To rewind it a little bit further, I got into sport as a little kid. I had a wonderful phys ed teacher and I've written about Mrs. Harper before. Mm-hmm. She she created this environment in the classroom where, you know, you could be a superstar, which I wasn't, but you could be a really good athlete. But she just made it fair always. So you had to pass before you scored another basket and things like that. Like mm-hmm the classic stuff, but it, it was just a safe environment for kids to have fun and be physically active and it absolutely changed my life. I have a learning disability. So I think it would be termed dyslexia today. I don't know if it's exactly that. Um, I have to go back and look at those papers, but, uh, you know, I had a lot of trouble reading as a kid and my outlet was being physical and, uh, and exercise and, and play and, um, Mrs. Harper and her classroom, her gym was my refuge in elementary school. And so, you know, I fell in love with sport then and I did everything as a kid. Part of that was, I'm sure, to keep my parents sane. Uh, And then I started paddling it properly, seriously, when I was around 13, somewhere in there, 12, 13.
0: And that's like, I guess, where the passion for it kind of was sparked. (laughs) Yeah. You
1: you know, I think I got lucky. I I don't know. You know, we all have our talents and, you know, I had a good set of lungs or I still do, I guess. So I was an endurance, you know, middle distance kind of endurance guy, but you know, I, I played all sorts of stuff and I was bad at it. I was bad at hockey, objectively (laughs) bad at hockey, you know, objectively (laughs) bad at most track events other than maybe middle distance running. I was okay. Like not great. Uh, (laughs) I wasn't the strongest, you know, but paddling, I was good at, I was good at canoeing and I, and it was fun. And it was just this great thing. So when you're a 13 year old, you're having trouble in school, you're not super confident there. um, And you find something where you do pretty well. um, That's a great place to be. And, and canoe kayaks, I think um, it's a great, it's a great sport where you're, you get to race a lot. um, You're exposed to, people of all different levels all the time and uh yeah it's a a really it's a fun environment so anyway yeah so I guess I fell in love with it just because I you know sometimes I'll say I was just good at it Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it was uh it was a fun place for me to be with a fun environment I was pretty young in the canoe club because it was so new I was kind of the first of the second generations of athletes through the club so I had all these older people that I looked up to that were mentors for me in a way and and maybe bad examples for a lot of things in hindsight, but, but it was all <laughs> relatively good. It'd be good fun. And, um, and, uh, yeah, again, you know, I went to Canada games when I was 15. I was young. I was the youngest guy on the team. I, that year, I think my best time dropped in a race that, you know, the start of the year was taking me five plus minutes by the end of the year it was taking me four minutes and 20 seconds or, you know, It's easy to think of a thousand meter, like a 1500 meter run. Those are, they're kind of, they're not quite equivalent, but in terms of length of time, it's four minutes is the big milestone. And at 15, the speed I was going was, was pretty fast. And I did well at those Canada games. I think I finished, I got a silver medal and a gold medal and a crew boat. Um, And that was awesome. So I got that tracksuit like my sister, like my sister did. And it was even uglier. (laughs) Hideous baby blue, hideous baby blue, but I still have it
0: um and that was a it was a yeah it was just a wonderful trip so. yeah it's pretty interesting you know and it kind of reminds me a little bit of when of how I kind of started track of like that I guess kind of safe environment and environment where there's a lot of people there and you're exposed to so much and you know you just like well, oh, I'm here and you just have kind of having a good time you know some yeah. good examples as well uh and some bad <laughs> examples for sure yeah. <laughs> always <laughs> but yeah but like um just being in that environment and then it kind of in a way nurturing you. It's really interesting that you said that you had a, a learning disability and that yeah. um you were once I mean you still do a little bit, but you're a writer working for like yeah. doing a whole bunch of writing things and yeah. um I wonder if that kind of played a part in in anything that involved you going forward or even in in paddling.
1: Yeah, I don't know. There's I mean the learning disability and you know, again, I think it would be classified as you know, mild to moderate dyslexia. I'm not, I'm not sure. And I need to explore this. I'd love to explore it. I don't have time right now. I'm also in the middle of an MBA at Queens and Cornell and it's, I I am slowly dying from this, but, but, and it's mostly math, which, you know, I had trouble reading, but I had more trouble with math, you know, but once that's done, I do, you know, there's definitely, I would love to explore that and learn more about this thing that caused me and causes tons of people, a lot of heartache and, I am extraordinarily fortunate that my mom was a teacher in the school. She was a grade one teacher and was able to recognize that I was a bright kid who was having more trouble than he should have. And so uh, there's a lot of luck here. And and I think we don't appreciate this as much, but I was lucky that my mom was a teacher at the school I was at. Although the only time she taught me, she sent me to the principal's office. So I had her for one class. (laughs) I also got spanked in grade one. So I'd act up in class and I'm old enough, I like to think that I'm one of the last kids to actually be spanked in class. I was pulled in front of the class in grade one, so this would be like 1990, 1990 or earlier, and I was spanked by the teacher, which wasn't my mom. Uh, so that that's just a aside, pardon me. But yeah, so I'd act out in class. And um and, uh, so my, my mom and the t- other teachers were like, Tom, Tom, this isn't normal. You know, there's something wrong. He's struggling more than he could. And I just couldn't read, you know, there were the C spot run books, C Jane C spot, those types of things. And I, I would be lost. And, um, so I got help. I had a tutor, um, that I'd see once a week or more, uh, for a really long time. And I know, you know, my parents weren't, was a middle-class kid they weren't loaded or anything and it was a strain for sure at times but if it wasn't for that and the help I got and um I would have been I would have been trouble I couldn't really read until properly read until grade four-ish and then in grade five it really took off and it went quickly so I went from being way behind to way ahead Mm. in about a year uh, which was interesting. And the first book, the first real book I ever read was The Call of the Wild by Jack London. I still have it. It might be, be it's behind me somewhere here and I, uh, uh, on the bookshelf and it is this large type book and, I, and it was hardcover and I remember feeling like a big boy because I read this real book and that was it. After that, after that, I've always, I've literally always had a book on the go. I've never not been reading something. Uh, it's It's just my passion. And so storytelling was a passion of mine and um so the writing came about from wanting to tell the stories that I love so much. And most of them were journalists. So I was like, okay, at one point most of those guys and, and women were journalists. And so I was like, okay, well, that's that's the route to being a writer. And so I did that. And uh that's how I ended up at Kangeio. it's
0: pretty cool. Yeah. On on that writing note, you mentioned um that one of your key influences, amongst others, was J.R. R. Tokian. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And Lord of the Rings. Why was that? Yeah,
1: I don't know. So we're on Zoom right now. I don't know how you broadcast this, but behind me, this there's there's bookshelves behind me, and the top two rows right behind me uh, are all Tolkien books. I I, there's a first edition Lord of the Rings there that cost too much money at one point. I'm full nerd, and there's a Gandalf statue right over here (laughs) behind me too. So and yeah, I make no bones about it. That book. Uh, I got it at Christmas. I got The Hobbit probably in grade five or six. Loved that book. And then I think my brother got me The Lord of the Rings when I was 14 or something. And I read it in about a week. And I remember crying when I finished it. I, I, there's no rhyme or reason here, but it touched me in some way. And I read it again right away, you know, another mm-hmm. two weeks later. And then for a period of about 10 years, I read it twice a year, every year. I, you know, it would just be in the mix and I'd travel with it. I'd always bring it. And I don't know, there's something really beautiful about it. Like, you know, basically everyone makes it except for poor Boromir. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it's a good story. It's a there's and it just I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot to look up to in that book. And maybe that's naive, but something about it spoke to me as a young man. And I still I just read it again. You know, I I got off that twice a year thing. um, But I just read it again uh, in the fall. And I just found myself going, man. I love this book.
0: This is a great book. So, yeah. No, it's really cool. I have, I have two younger brothers, and we've all read um, right. The Lord of the Rings. And then also when the movies came out, we all watched the movies as well. We had yeah. like a Lord of the Rings like movie marathon, and we, we watched. <laughs> so it was, it was actually pretty crazy. We watched all three original, and then we watched the, um, I think they had like a director's cut, which was even the longer. The extended edition. Yeah. <laughs> And so yeah. we, we all three of us, we sat down and we watched it. So I'm, I'm with you on that, <laughs> that, that nerd tips. So I, I totally understand where you're coming Absolutely. from. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's cool. I want to talk a bit more about uh, your Olympic experience and I guess some of the training that kind of went behind that and culminating in your medal. And then maybe we, afterwards you can transition into that post-athlete life and kind of what you're doing right now. But what was that Olympic experience like for those who are, who are probably listening? It's pretty incredible to kind of see your journey from, you know, paddling at 13 to becoming an Olympic bronze medalist. I read an article that said that uh, you were a surprise bronze medalist, so I want to maybe get some thoughts on that, but just kind of take us through that, that, that kind of journey for you, you know, so once it's, uh, yeah. it's, uh, it's an incredible experience to, A, to get to the Games, number one, yeah. and then yeah. to, to win a medal is, um, is something completely different, so kind of, kind of take us through that experience.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and the surprise problem, has. We'll start there. We'll start it. We'll start with that. Just while it's in on top, of, top of mind, it's pretty funny. So that year, um, Sports Illustrated does their predictions, and and they had they got it right. Uh, sports, yeah, they had me third behind Attila uh, Vida from Hungary and David Cal from Spain, and you know, and that year it was accurate. So, You know, I showed up that year and I was fast, and um, I, I, you know in Canada at that time there were uh, there's Mark Oldershaw who's still training Olympic bronze in 2012 there was Richard Dalton who was a world championship bronze in in the same event in 2005 and and always right there uh, Ian Mortimer who's works at Canucka Canada now was also right there he had a, an injury but he was he was fast and there the Budai brothers from Toronto that had multiple games. Attila, the older one, was really fast in C1, always a threat uh, guy Demi- to me. There were, there were, though, in terms of who could have won the medal that year, there were probably three guys in Canada who could have won that medal had they, had they been in that race. Hmm. Um, and so the reason I was a surprise was because I have never raced the C1000 meters uh, at a senior world championship. So I wanted a junior world's. And you know, I was the first guy to win uh, junior world champs from Canada in canoe kayak in about 20 years. I did really well the following year, 2000. I didn't get to the games or anything, but I did well. And then um, career kind of slumped. And, you know, Adam Vancouverton. So I think most of your listeners will know who Adam is, but four-time Olympic medalist and Olympic champ in 2004. Adam was also 15 at those Canada games that I went to in 97. And he was also at those junior worlds. And I think he got a silver and a bronze. I remember in 2004, so I had some trouble and between 2000 and 2004, all sorts of stuff happened. One of the main things was one of my best friends from high school died in a car accident. And yeah, no, it was tragic. It's really tragic. It's absolutely tragic. It was a stupid thing. And it totally made me question everything, including sport and why I was doing it. And I went Mm -hmm. to a psychologist and we had a really good conversation. He didn't understand sport at all, but he... He asked the question, he's like, why do you do this? seems like it's taking over your life and it's stressing you out. And he asked, and it, and it was great. It was the right question. I needed to think about it. And I think a lot of athletes don't actually take a, take a beat and are like, why am I doing this? And I, you know, I kept a journal just writing down kind of how I was feeling every day. And I remember after months of going to see this guy, you know, we go through the journal and I'm looking at it. And objectively, my journal was actually a lot more positive than I thought my life was. So my, I was telling the, myself these stories in my head about how things were, but my journal was telling a different story hmm. and it was really interesting. Anyway, at the end of that, I was like, I'm into this. Okay. Going back to Adam. So, but I was on the couch at, at, in Athens. I was on the couch at home in Athens in point Claire and I watched Adam Vancouver and who's again, a good friend, win gold, win silver, send him a text. You know, we had a quick back and forth of whatever it was at that point. Um, and then, uh, and then I watched him win gold the next day, and I was just like, "Man, what?" It just, I was blown away, and I was so proud of him. It was harder to watch the guy I beat at Junior Worlds win gold. <laughs> That's, that was harder. I, you know, I was thrilled for Adam, but to watch the guy and see one that I beat uh, win gold, um, and so I just, I called up my coach, and I had shifted coaches in that four years and all this stuff. Called mm-hmm. up my coach, and I was like, "You know, this is it. We're going. We're going to figure it out in Beijing, and together we we worked on that plan." But literally, there was Mark Oldershaw, there was, there was Richie Dalton, um, me, and we were probably the, the front three, Ian, Ian was a big threat, uh, and then a couple other guys who were threats on if I had a bad day, they had a good day, could have gone either way. And so I didn't get it, you know, I didn't get the C1 spot, I never raced the C1000 at a world championships, and then I showed up and I won an Olympic bronze in it. But at World Cups, you know, Mark would finish first and I would finish second or Mark would finish third and I would finish fourth, sometimes vice versa and ditto with Richie. So we were always right there. So I wasn't a surprise and everyone on the circuit knew that I was fast. You know, I could have, I could be top five kind of at any, any point in that quad, you know, I was somewhere between certainly third and fifth kind of thing, in my opinion, maybe, maybe a little bit worse at sometimes, but so Getting to Beijing involved uh, beating the hardest part, frankly, was getting out of Canada and was, and, and what a system, right? That's, that's beautiful when you're a sports system, that's what you want to see. Yeah. And, um, so knowing that I beat Richie and I beat Mark, um, gave me the confidence and then just showed up on the world cup. I was overall world cup champion that year, uh, which was, which was awesome. And, uh, and then at the games, the only people that beat me were the only people I hadn't beaten that year. So I'm a pretty firm believer that, you know, we talk a lot about these magic moments in sport, but I realize in hindsight that I didn't have too many magic moments. I was either the fastest guy or I wasn't. And when I was, I was fast <laughs> and, you know, it, 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 yeah. And it's interesting. Anyway, there's, there's a lot to unpack there, but that's, that's the, that's the gist of it.
0: Yeah, you're right. And, and part of that too, I think just to kind of go off, what you were saying is like the, those magic moments on the outside looking in, right? Like they seem like, you know, how, how did this happen? But when you, from sorry, I guess from, yeah, the outside looking in are kind of like kind of crazy, but then when you, from the inside look out, you're like, well, I was just, I was just prepared. And so this was the (laughs) outcome that that happened. Exactly,
1: (laughs) I worked my ass off and and I showed, you know, in the three races earlier that year against almost all the same people, I beat them. And so why, why would I not again? Uh, and obviously things can go wrong. And yeah. again, I think luck is, we underestimate luck. It's just, it's all these, luck has such a huge role and you can't discount it. And all you can do is prepare. And, and then it's, you know, it's a roll of the dice. You get, you get sick at the wrong time. It's, it's over. Yeah. And I didn't win by, you know, I didn't win that medal by much and anything could have gone wrong. And uh, so I, I, you know, it's, that has really helped me, frankly, and it's helped me in my career just to recognize that, yes, I was talented and I worked super hard and I had a great coach and everything was set up for me to succeed. And and it, I am one of the lucky ones who on the day got the chance to just give it my all and succeed. And so I have no regrets. I wouldn't have won silver. I couldn't have won gold. Those guys are faster. Um, and I'm extraordinarily lucky that I can even say that. <laughs> like Most people don't get to say that. And so, I have a lot of um you know I'm very grateful that 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 all those stars all aligned because mm-hmm. uh,
0: most of the time it doesn't I, I remember talking to somebody and and kind of sharing that same sentiment of like you know there's probably somebody out there who I don't know who is potentially probably more deserving than I am, and that knowledge and that reality is is very it's humbling in a way because they probably deserve it if you were to listen to their story and probably hear their, their, you know, what, what they went through and for them not to be there, it's probably, it's probably like soul crushing, but here I am. So it's very fortunate to to be here in the first place. And like like you say, can't, can't take it for granted at all. Yeah. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and that's why, you know, it's the medals are the things we talk about and, and it's certainly nice, but especially the further away I get from it, the less I care, about it. you know, like it, I don't even know, it, for the longest time I didn't it was somewhere in my parents' house, you know, and I would I would only know where it was if I was going to talk to a school and that you know, and it was something that I could pass around to to kids and it was cool and that was that was fun. But for me, you know, the things I miss, oh man, I you know, I reflect upon it more and more and more, but I just miss training camp and I miss my friends in training camp. And it was just a ridiculously fun time. And the idea that You've got, you know, and we get a lot of international people. It was a super collaborative sport. It was a lot of fun that way. But you just get everyone together. And, and for three or four months of the year in Florida in the, in the, over the winter, just like killing each other, but then getting home after the hard, a hard day and, you know, whatever it was, whether it was playing video games, cooking dinner, having a beer, just like it was a great time. It was so much fun. And I miss that so much. And and I really don't miss racing all that much. It's very <laughs> stressful. And uh, and even the Olympics, like my Olympics, canoe is often out of the village and out of the kind of center of things. And we were in outside, pretty far out of Beijing in a hotel. And I was looking, I found photos the other day of my hotel room. And it was just this, it was a nice hotel room, but I I, I basically spent three weeks alone in a hotel room uh, with a bunch of other nervous people, uh, in their own, in their other rooms. And, uh, and that was, that was pretty much it. And it was like there to do a job. And, and my race was one of the last events at the games. So I finished on Friday, Saturday, you know, did a bunch of media stuff, went to a cool party. I, did, I, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't even get drunk, which isn't a measure of anything, but I think a lot of people think there's a big game. I didn't, I didn't go to like Heineken House or any of these cool things. I went to one cool party, Oakley House, and Usain Bolt was there, surrounded by like fifty people, <laughs> and that was it. You know, I didn't get close to him. Uh, that was fun. And then, I you know, two days later, I was gone. And uh, and so it's funny people ask about my Olympic experience, and it was one of the most boring parts of my career, to be brutally honest. But it was great. I had a job to do, and my job was to go and and do my best, in, in this C1000 event. And and that's what I did. Um, so I don't, there's no regrets or I would, I literally wouldn't change a thing, but it's just funny when you think about it. The, the best times were training camp.
0: Yeah, totally, totally agree. You know, track and field, similar way. Like, uh, I mean, I was fortunate to go for the relay and the relays on the last day as well. and kind of just waiting, sitting around, right? (laughs) You're not going to go anywhere. Otherwise, you're going to jeopardize your chance of being able to perform. You're just waiting around around until you have to do it. And then the next day, the Olympic Games are done. It's like, all right, bye. right? (laughs) exactly. (laughs) You know, you have trained for this moment and you've been able to go to the Olympic Games and you finish third and it's incredible. And then there's that moment where a lot of athletes, they, Decide whether to go for another four years or maybe stop, right? And uh, for you, in this case, you decided to, you know, go back and and try to to either defend or you know best that position. Which I think is, I don't think any athlete. Well, I shouldn't say any. Most athletes in that position would probably be like, yeah, if I did it once, I could do it twice, right? A hundred percent. And so, um, you know, you make that decision to start training again for another four, but it doesn't end the same way. <laughs>
1: Um. <laughs> it Certainly doesn't. Yeah, yeah. This is a great question, and get it, it. It ties back to what I said earlier when I when I was asked by that psychologist, "Why am I doing this?" And it's probably needed to be asked that question again sometime in the second quad from 2008 to 2012. Uh, why am I doing this? Would have been a good question. So one of the things that I really should have done, and I was also in school the whole time. So I did a most of a phys ed degree at McGill. I wanted to be an outdoor and phys ed teacher. And again, Mrs. Harper inspired me to, to do this. And then CJEP in Quebec, college in Quebec, that everyone has to do two years of. As like, if you can be a phys ed teacher at CJEP, you've got a dream job. It is great. And I wanted that. Uh, but I couldn't. Um, I realized as I was at McGill and studying phys ed that I would be a terrible teacher. And so I stopped school in 2007. Yeah, I would, I would murder people. I did not have the patience <laughs> to do it. So, so I stopped school in 07 to focus on the games. And then I started to do, and, um, my, my brother's advice, which was good. Just, I didn't know what I wanted to do. He's like do an undergrad in business, no matter what, it'll be applicable to whatever you end up doing, which is true. So I did that. And, um, but I, I should have taken more time after 2008. Um, so, you know, I, the games ended in August, end of August, went right into school, did some cool stuff with, um, with my friends in that, that fall, which was, which was tons of fun. But, you know, I should have taken a year off and really thought about it, or at least like six months. But the problem was we were hosting the World Championships in 2009 in Canada, and that was going to be my only chance to race Worlds at home. And, uh, you know, and so I went into that year wanting to do that really badly, but not really wanting to train. And, you know, it's, it's a razor's edge. You can't, you can't be, you know, you gotta be all in or you just don't get anywhere. And so I was like, I was still all in ish, but not enough. So I went through that year and it was okay. I didn't race C1. I raced C4 with a great crew and we did Okay. And then, and then you're on the train and it's like, okay, here we go. There's only two more years and then it's qualifying. So might as well just keep going. And so I don't regret it. Again, I would, I would do it all again, but I, I switched gears. So in 2009, uh, again, I think Mark Woldershaw was just fast. He was faster than I was. And another guy, Ben Russell, was also super fast. Mm. Ben and I jumped into C2 together, uh, doubles. And we're really good. And so I had never raced C2 because I didn't want to have to worry about anyone else. My success or failure was going to be, you know, it was going to be my fault if, if we lost. I never wanted to have to, you know, either carry someone or blame someone. You know what I mean? You don't want to yeah. blame anyone, obviously. But, but Ben and I were fast and it was fun and it was kind of the mental break I needed to have someone else. And yeah, we had a really good shot to do very well in London, but just a couple of bad things happened. We lost trials. The, the criteria was bad that year, and uh, legitimately bad. It was like a one, a one-off winner goes kind of thing for qualifying, which is never a good idea because bad luck struck, and Ben and I messed up the start of our race really badly, and you know we almost still won. Uh, and this isn't a knock; the other guys were phenomenal and have our best ever c2 result at the games but we were just i think objectively faster that year mm-hmm. and we we messed up our race like it was just bad luck and had it been a best two out of three you know we probably would have come out on top but it was a one-off and then those guys had an unfortunate race at worlds and an unfortunate second chance through um through pan am qualifiers and and that was it so the the devil's olympic dream ended you know in fall 2011 and then I kind of switched gears to go and see one, but then halfway through my halfway through and I did okay, you know, training camp was all good, but halfway through the race in Atlanta, Georgia, I just gave up and, you know, I paddled to the shore and I, I remember seeing Mike, who's my really good friend and coach. He's only like a, a you know, a year older than me. We used to race together. And, you know, I cried, we cried a little bit. And then, um, and could I have done it? I don't know, like physically, probably mentally, not a chance. Mm-hmm. And even physically, I think older Shaw was just too fast and he went and won the bronze anyway. So that's all good. But yeah. And, and so that didn't end the way I wanted it to end obviously, but at the same time, I, my career, like was extraordinarily fortunate. I won a medal at every major event I went to almost all of them gold or, uh, yeah, almost all of them gold, except for the silver and the bronze. And you can't ask for much more than that. So I don't have any regrets from those, you know, the last quad, but it was certainly a different, a different thing. And my whole career was a lot of ups and downs. Few times was I the fastest guy, or I was second, but treated like I was further back. And so it, that certainly influenced me. And I was involved with Athletes Can, which, you know, athlete rights organization. And Sometime around 2009, I realized some of the problems in the system, it's just the Canadian sports system that that have existed for a while now. And my whole mission in sport and my career in sport is to make it safer, but more than anything, fairer for athletes. So I always say, I want to make it fairer, safer, and healthier for athletes. And I've been like, legit, that's been my catchphrase for every job I've had or every volunteer position I've had in sports since about 2009. And the fairness piece is just like, it's not that hard to make it a little bit more fair and a little bit more transparent about how we do things and how things are selected. And and I think a lot of athletes leave sport because they feel at the end of their careers, like, you know, things weren't fair or things were. And that is just a tragedy for me. We lose so many people who would give back and just be wonderful ambassadors for sport. And things are getting better. Anyway, so the ups and downs of my career have certainly influenced my my professional career. Mm-hmm. And certainly what I've written about was sport and what I think is important about sport and, and all of that. So it's not all bad, you know. <laughs> it is what it, is. it certainly is what it is. I would have loved to have gone yeah. to London, but, but
0: uh, it didn't work out. And so be it. Yet. Yeah. You know, it's funny because, well, I guess it's not really funny, but it's interesting because you mentioned in that race, you kind of stopped. And I don't know, I guess, like what what is that? Like, why, why do you think that that happened when when you think about it? Like, why do you think you just stopped?
1: Yeah, my, my heart wasn't in it. That was, that was it. And you've got to be all in, you know, in a, in a healthy way, I think. I mean, people are motivated by different things, obviously. And I think there's like two major buckets and this is a way oversimplification. So, but bear with me, I think there are two major buckets we see. There's a lot of people that are motivated by anger, you know, or something, they got something to prove and they're motivated and they get out of their way and they'll win and they'll kick ass, but they also transition really badly. And, you know, I know a lot of those people longer term have a really difficult time fitting in and figuring out how they operate. And so, and those people also will have longer careers and some of them like never give up. You know, They, they keep going and it's sad for me, but that, so there's that bucket. And then there's there's another bucket that isn't, you know, for sport, is it better? I don't know, but they are motivated. It's more intrinsic motivation. You know, they're, they fall into that model a little bit more and they're, and they're motivated by trying to, you know, be the best they can be. And sure they're competitive. Like you have to be competitive. And like, I was motivated to like, I wanted to destroy my competitors. Right? <laughs> I just I wanted them to give up. I wanted to crush their dreams,
0: crush their souls in that four-minute race. You know, I wanted
1: to be you know, a destroyer of worlds. But but ultimately, I didn't care. At the end, it wasn't what defined me. And I loved these guys, and I still do. Mm. And um, and so I was never. It didn't transfer into life in the same way that it does for other people. But when I gave up, I had known, you know, there was a couple of years. Part of the reason I went into doubles was it was something different. I was kind of bored. I was like, I've done this. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to win the Olympics. There's a German guy that had come onto the scene, Brendel, who's now got like, I think, four Olympic gold medals. Or so. The guy is just a machine. He won two two gold. Yeah. Anyway, I would never have beaten him. I probably wouldn't have come in silver. And, and uh, so why? You know what is it? What am I trying to prove? Who am I? And then there's other things that interest me in life. So that was it. Um, and so I remember just being like, oh, I don't want to suffer, man. Like it hurts. A thousand meter race is awful. It's it's a lot like running a, a fifteen hundred or something like that. Like it is pure pain from after about forty seconds, and it's just how much you can suffer. And so it's uh, it's extraordinarily painful. Yeah. And so I had no desire to put myself through that. And I I just should have uh, recognized that earlier. I kind of wish I had, but then you get caught up in momentum. Mm. You know, and it's hard to break out of that. People have expectations for you. And so I think other people were really surprised that that's what happened and thought, and I was also, I was often a dark horse. Like I'd come out of nowhere and win. So when I was far back halfway through, people were like, oh, he's got a chance. I'm like, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I did, there's no chance. This is over. <laughs> and so, you know, people after were really surprised and it's like, I was not surprised. I, and I, you know, I could have pulled out the night before or something and would have been the same thing. So, yeah, but the different journeys I've watched in paddling, which is a pretty good sport that has a decent budget, and you know, I'm heavily involved with it. I love the sport. Mm-hmm. But there were some really bad decisions made and some really bad criteria. And some really there was like a four-year period in there that was just like it lost its way. And so we went, Beijing, we had a full Olympic team. Every spot was filled. We won three Olympic medals. 2012, we sent, so that was about 18 people. 2012, we sent, I think six people won three Olympic medals. Two of which we had won before, so winning those, and then one was the new event.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and then 2016, we sent, again, I think seven people, no medals, barely finals. And how does that happen, right? That was one of the first games where Kanukai hasn't won a medal at the Olympics in a Yes, ball.
0: that's right, actually. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean,
1: there's awesome leadership lessons in in there about what are you looking for? So things in the criteria became really murky. It wasn't objective. We are. It's a race. You win or you lose. It's beautiful that way. Why complicate it? It doesn't matter if it takes ten minutes or four minutes. It's a race, and the winner should go. Right? That's best, best two out of three, generally to, to account for bad luck and things like that. But winner should go. And we were playing with stuff where you know people thought they knew better than the results of a race. And you can pass all the physical tests in the world. You can be the strongest guy in the gym and the most power, most explosive. But I don't give a shit. Pardon my, pardon my French. If you show up on the line and you don't have what it takes to suffer for four minutes, I don't care what you did in the gym. I don't even care what you did on the treadmill for four minutes. Like a canoe race is a canoe race is a canoe race. Mm -hmm. And if, if you're not able to do that consistently, then I don't care. So we got to the point where we're picking people's bodies and and favoring oh this guy looks big and strong they'll be better or this girl looks big and strong she does really well on this power stuff that's what the Germans are really good at but they're not finishing top whatever in in singles and there's you know this is super complicated but at the end of the day I just think you line up and race if you've got a sport that is racing and is it not judged don't turn it into a judged sport
0: 100% <laughs> yeah hundred percent you're, you're really heavily involved now in this, like on, I guess the end side of like sport almost. And you mentioned your your kind of motto is, is safe, uh, safe, fair and healthy. And I guess I want you to kind of talk to the transition from being an athlete to where you are now. Cause I think even your journey from stopping to like getting into the sport world, like you are now was a testament to that, like safe, fair and healthy, especially that healthy piece in terms of the wellness of the athlete to that journey and and how you kind of got into it.
1: Yeah. So I left, and so I left sport when I finished my career, I didn't like leave. I was on the board when I left, I'd already been volunteering in the sport and I had a lot, you know, I was on the, yeah, effectively on the board on, on one of the committees that did the board of the sprint side of canoe kayak Canada, which has three separate disciplines. So, Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know, my time there at that point uh, was pretty, there were a lot of arguments and it was a lot of discussions because I was seeing stuff that like, I just, like I'd spoken about earlier, but criteria that wasn't transparent when it should have been and could have been. And we were getting away from the the stuff that had made us really good for decades, Hmm. which was, it's a race show up and race. And if you win, you win. And like that really matters. And we've gotten away from all that stuff. And uh, so I had a lot of tension and I, I get in a lot of fights, well, fights, you know, disagreements with people. And, um, and so, you know, there were contentious years for me as a volunteer in canoe kayak, but I left sport otherwise. So I went into journalism. I did my master's of journalism degree. I, I spent a, you know, a summer at the Ottawa Citizen and then um, most of my time at, at Canadian Geographic, which was lovely. And I mean, the, the license to ask people questions, which you have now, is one of the coolest things. And like CanGeo's motto is to make Canada better known to Canadians and the rest of the world, which is an awesome thing. And basically, I had an excuse to call up really interesting people in a safe way. It wasn't gotcha journalism, which is what it is. Or it wasn't political journalism where you're trying to, you know, you're holding people to account as much. It was like, there's a scientist in Canada who's a world leading expert in like Beatles or something you know interview this guy and anyone who is passionate about anything is fascinating in my opinion and mm-hmm. so i would spend hours on the phone with these people trying to understand what made them float and in the and and that was like a huge change from the sport world for me and you know i got to explore different things and flex different muscles and and grow different skill sets that was just wonderful and i really loved it but in the meantime, you know, I was I was still active with Athletes Can. I was on the board of Athletes Can as well while I was competing. And every year they do Athletes Can form. And that brings together, you know, 80 people from a whole bunch of different sports, from Olympic medalists to people that never make the team or on the edge of karting. And so I've been exposed over my career, probably exposed to about. 500 to a thousand athletes with very different backgrounds and from very different sports, which was worth its weight in gold because I learned what was frustrating me. your kayak was also frustrating other people. Like there's this universal kind of thing mm-hmm. that has certainly influenced my approach to sported men. Um, anyway, so all that was going on from like 2012 to let's say 2016. And then I got involved at athletes can again. Um, so I'd been on the board Ashley the, Brie, the the ED at the time who was wonderful it was going on maternity leave and the job came up and I was like oh I'll throw my hat in the ring this will be a lot of fun and so yeah I got that job and in that role um, I got to learn a lot about how the system worked and I got exposed to a lot of the you know the leader the senior leadership people in sport in Canada whether they're the executive director or CEO of the sport or one of the multi-sport organizations whether it's the olympic and paralympic committees or coaching association or whatever it is so i got to know those people and understand a lot better what their struggles were and what they were trying to accomplish and the constraints they were under and that has really changed my view of sport and i think you know there, yeah, this is a longer. We can get into that in a minute, but it changed my view of sport and and how and what the problems "quote unquote" were. Mm-hmm. And so, I still think there are fundamental problems with how athletes understand the system. and And part of this is on the athletes, but also how the system presents itself to athletes. There's not enough transparency and around decisions and selection processes in a lot of sports. There just isn't. There's a lot of arbitrary rules that are based on poor sports science. There's some really great sports science, not to knock at all. I, I, you know, I was one of those people, I was elbows deep in that my whole career. Uh, so it's not to knock it, but there are a lot of things that are like, mm, if you were going to get in a plane based on the quality of science that we're, you know, deciding this team with, you would not last, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get on that plane. And, um, so I started to, um, just get a better understanding of, yeah, some of, some of the issues. And I, I think a huge part of it just comes down to treating athletes like adults. Um, like the average age of the carded athlete right now is about 26 years old and you know, we don't tell them the truth. And I, I'm using the universal week cause I'm on sported men's side now, but some sports are really poor at just, at just being blatant and some of it's to protect feelings. Other, other bits are like, you know, gun shy around, um, appeals and all that and there's some truth to that and, and why they should be but honestly like I think we can get to a better spot. Anyway, I'm rambling um, that kind of st- steered my, my approach to sport and so the safer piece is obvious, sport just needs to be safe and people need to feel safe the fairer piece just comes down to pure transparency and we need a, a big shift and honestly I think it's happening but there needs to be a big shift I think still in some sports and then, uh, and then healthier. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) we spend a fortune on, uh, we spend a fortune on, you know, the latest tech and things like this, but if an athlete has a cavity, how do they get that treated? Or if an athlete has a tooth infection and they don't have their parents' insurance to draw upon and, you know, Cape doesn't, which is a Canadian athlete insurance program doesn't cover that kind of stuff. I just, that tooth infection is going to cause more trouble than, then, then your cryo chamber is going to fix. So I, but it's the cryo chamber is sexy and we, and that's cool. And that's headline driven, but honestly, let's just get people on a basic health and and benefits program. And, you know, so I think, you know, we, we, anyway, we go down these paths and support, and and I, I think there's some bad decisions there, but ultimately a big part of some of the issues that we see and some of the frustrations athletes experience that I've seen is, sport is mostly run by phenomenal people who are truly committed and like really care like to an extraordinary amount. And a lot of them work an obscene amount of hours truly do. Even for even the ones who are like quote unquote, well-paid, these people work extraordinarily hard and are trying really hard. And sometimes they just don't have the time to actually think about how can I make this better? They're just, they're on a hamster wheel. And I say that with complete respect and I've experienced a bit of that. And, um, so it's easy to criticize, but once you see just a, a constant chaos that these people have to manage, whether it's international stuff or national stuff or provincial stuff, it's, it's, um, it's yeah, it's extraordinary. So yeah, I don't, not a great answer there, but I have a lot of, I have a lot of, uh, you know, sympathy for, for everyone involved. It's a tough, it's a tough gig.
0: No. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I think to be able to kind of look at everything and, you know, like you say, I guess from the back end. and I mean, I don't really know as much about it as you do, obviously. Um, I I know a little bit and i in a weird way, I've been fortunate to see it from both sides of like being carded and and not being carded and kind of the, you know, what what went into both sides. So I kind of have some perspective on that. And even for an athlete, you know, like you mentioned, I think one thing you mentioned that really stuck to me is like even treating athletes like, you know, they're adults and like, just <laughs> kind of being frank with them and being like, letting them know what's, what's really going on here and what's really at stake. Because I think something that you mentioned too in Um, some other interviews and and articles is just like that that type of uncertainty that a lot of athletes kind of face and I was thinking about that and I was like well why would we be afraid especially I think if an athlete is going to transition from sport into you know quote-unquote the real world right why would it why would we be afraid of uncertainty because we deal with uncertainty all the time and in in our sport but then I kind of realized that it's I guess in sport it's more of a controlled uncertainty versus when you go into step into like the the world again it's like it's it's uncontrolled like you don't you really don't know what's going yeah. on and what's happening right so yeah
1: <laughs> yeah i mean i'm convinced no one knows anything <laughs> and and everyone is doing their best and uh and that's you know most people are doing their best and mean really well <laughs> like it's chaos and that's you know it's my it's maybe a bleak philosophy but uh as long as you're trying to be kind and and help other people along the way it's hard to go too wrong, but honestly, yeah, I don't, there's certainly no master plan. I think one of the things we see with athletes and if I put like a game plan hat on and here and listen to what the advisors have said. So I, you know, I can say I'm fortunate to have been exposed to, yeah, somewhere around 700 plus athletes and, and different and, and having good conversations with them. The advisors are like into the thousands, right? Some of these, some of the game plan advisors have just talked to so many people, with so many different backgrounds and careers. And it's fascinating, but, you know, A, everyone has a different path, but B, you know, athletes, it's a weird thing. You know, they'll they'll leave sport and in sport, you're kind of told where to be, what to do, when to show up and you have all these things. So you're right. You don't, you don't know what's, what decisions are being made or why necessarily, but everything's kind of laid out for you. Like I can, I can rattle off a week in 2006 right now in terms of what I would have been it's no problem. I, I like for for a decade plus, I can do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's yeah, it's like ridiculous. And, um, and I bet you, if I actually looked at my programs, which I still have, I'd be like 90%, right? It, can you do that? You. Can you do that? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, where are we? So what's the date? February. I'd be in Florida. We'd be doing, we'd be doing volume. So it would be Mondays would be a up. We, it would be um, three times, 10 times a minute on a minute off. Oh no, 10 times, three times a minute on, a minute off, catch, exit, release, catch, exit together. Uh, Then noon would be weights. Afternoon would be something um, cardio-ish. So like 10 times six minutes or something like that. All interval training in canoe kayak or or a pyramid, you know, one minute to 10 minutes back Mm -hmm. down. Tuesday, um, a hard paddle in the morning, usually long. So for us, that's 90 minutes, two hours kind of thing. Uh, a hard run, so some middle distance, like, it would be six times about a kilometer or something, 80, 90, 80, 90, with relatively short rest. And then a hard paddle in the afternoon is a brutal day. Wednesday, time controls, two kilometer time controls in the morning, weights <laughs> uh, waits, waits at lunch, afternoon off. Uh, Thursday, hard morning hard cardio, whatever it was, another run, typically something longer and more steady. Afternoon, usually it was a bit easier. There was something, you know, it would be something technique focused in the afternoon. Friday mornings were a bit random, but again, this week it would have been a long paddle, probably 16K steady. So for us, that's somewhere around 90 minutes, two hours, and then weights, and then uh, a relatively easy kind of cool down afternoon. So a short on your own as you feel kind of thing. Saturday morning would have been brutal. Uh, the Hungarian coaches called it Hokamoka Mocha which I think means nothing. Like I think it's just, this, <laughs> uh, like we joke about this, but I'm pretty sure Hokamoka is just a thing that, uh, but this would be like a brutal two and a half hour or something. And it was always brutal. And then often when I was younger, it would either be Early in the morning would either be an eight take eight k time control run followed by hokamoka, or it would be the opposite. So you do hokamoka at like seven or six thirty in the morning, and so you finish around I don't know nine ish, and then eat something, and then at ten or eleven you'd go and do an eight k like all out run, and then afternoon was typically off. Sometimes weights, and then Sundays were generally off. Although I often did something on Sunday. So that would have been it. That would have been a February week. And like, I can get detailed, but there weren't that many trainings. You know, we had a bucket of maybe 20 different paddles that we would do. And then the runs were all the same.
0: Yeah. Jeez. That's impressive. No,
1: yeah. so that's it. Yeah. I mean, we, I also, in hindsight, we overtrained all the time. I, I think we could have trained 20% less, especially during the competitive season. And we all would have been faster, but that's a, that's a different subject. You,
0: you know, honestly, yeah, I... I think that's like uh, a common thing for, for many athletes, even in track and field, like for sure probably could have trained a little bit less at, at different points. I'll points. tell you
1: what, my Olympic year, for what it's worth, I trained a lot. My volume was way down. My intensity was way up. My recovery was way up too. And um, like the summer when i qualified, we had about eight weeks or something to the games. And Mike and I, we had like train for pain was our motto because it was just about pain for me. I was weaker than a lot of the guys and, and smaller, but I had a better set of lungs. So they would start faster and I would just have to be like really steady. I couldn't afford to slow down as much or, and so it was, we would, we, we just, the Olympic schedule was out. We knew Monday was a heat. Monday afternoon was a heat. Wednesday afternoon was a semi and Friday afternoon was the final. And so we built the whole eight weeks around that and just doing that basically every week. So those three workouts would be brutal. And super painful, like just designed to hurt. And mm-hmm. then everything else was either basic cardio, and yeah, in hindsight, we should have been doing that the whole time. <laughs> but uh, but it, it was what it was. Anyway, this this is a tangent. I don't remember where we were now. Well, <laughs> That's all right. I mean, it was sporting min stuff, and and uh, you know, system issues and and stuff like that. So. It's easy to pick up anything.
0: <laughs> there's a whole lot. But. No, I, so we were talking more just about like the, um, the behind the scenes and like you said, some of the sport right. admin issues and um, the fairness and the transparency and just being honest and real with athletes in terms of what's going on, even though no one really knows what's yeah. going at, <laughs> at the end of the day because there's so much uncertainty um, um, around that. I think something else that I wanted to ask you, you've been in the, the, the sport admin side for about, I, I think seriously for about four years um since kind of becoming the, the manager at at game plan and then now you're transitioning to this role with the COC. What has been, I guess, three major lessons that you that you know now that you didn't know before you started?
1: Yeah, one of them for sure, and I've, I said this earlier, was like the people kind of in charge of the system that we see, like they are again lovely people and working really hard and care. A crazy amount about sport I, they really do there's always exceptions but I am that was something that I learned really quickly and it changed my view so that was one and and they're doing their best under really difficult circumstances most of the time like it's fascinating to me and that's this is like the kind of corporate side of the business again like a lot of the problems athletes face come on the technical side. So the, whether it's the high performance committees or with the HPDs and things like that, and they're under their own constraints, but yeah. So one of them is really that the people, people care and people are trying. And um, uh, so that, you know, that is interesting. Another one is, you know, I do think, we have to really consider what sport is doing for Canadians in general. This is something that I come back to a lot and I've written about it a lot. My major criticisms of sport with the kind of top-down funding and things like that are like, this is all well and good in a system that has a robust base and, and we have a country of active, healthy children and all the rest of it who are getting quality daily physical education and things like that. But that isn't the reality. And, and so you know, we need, and I know these sports want to do this. Like we need to focus on the bottom of the pyramid and we need to, to make sport accessible for new Canadians, um, accessible for not middle-class Canadians only or upper-class Canadians only. Like sport is very expensive and, uh and we're missing some of the toughest kids. I interviewed Clara Hughes for my master's uh research project and, mm. you know, she was just, you hear about her background and it's just crazy, you know, like she was a tough kid, Yeah, that tough that, you know, that, that for sure fueled her and she's still something she's dealing with today. You just read her book and, and it's clear that she's still grappling with this. I mean, uh, it's not too much to say that if we want to be looking at medalists, we should be looking for kids from rough backgrounds and like, you know this is maybe crass to say but honestly it's it's a real thing like that anger motivation is super powerful that we've spoken about but it also leads to really sad outcomes in the long run I think mm. and really unhappy people and I think as the sports system if if we are a refuge for those people if we're a refuge for the kid from a broken home or something like that and this is his safe space or her safe space it's incumbent on us to help them, figure it out i really do believe this and people may think oh that's you know that's not our business or whatever let's just get let's just get the metal out of them or something but we can't claim all the things that we claim sport does for people if it's not actually doing it for people (laughs) and uh and i think you know the system agrees in general like game plan is about that it's about helping people figure it out and and find a soft landing and and get the help they need along the way but it's still a real challenge and and uh, um, anyway, so you asked for three things I've, again I've gone on a tangent uh, pardon me I, so I think I think the second one though is definitely we we need to consider what sport's doing for Canadians and that involves um, something around youth and and new Canadians and the changing population and sorting that out it just that that's fundamental to me. Mm. and then the third thing, Um, is that sport is super powerful. Like I, having lived it and having experienced it and gone through it and, you know, I have my own views about it. I sometimes underestimate just what an influence it can have and just how important it is. And, you know, one of the crazy, amazing things about working at the Canadian Olympic Committee when I started, I I was, I was completely humbled by the rest of the team there and how much a lot of non-athletes, you know, relatively athletic people, but certainly, you know, there are a lot of Olympians. I think the Canadian Olympic committee is actually the largest employer of Olympians in the sports system globally, which is weird. You know, there's obviously companies that have more, but they have a ton and and that's fantastic. But realizing how important the games were to my colleagues, um, made me look at it in a very different way than it did as an athlete. You know, I took things for granted that I Mm. should never have taken for granted. And I was really embarrassed. Um, And, uh, and so sport really does have a ton of power and it's just, how do we harness it properly? Um, Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe that's the third one. Like people work in sport because they love it. And uh, and I think athletes will get lost in that a little bit and forget it um, because our experience is so different. Like, this is us. This is our identity. And, but um, it's, I think it's important to recognize that sometimes, yeah.
0: What do you think was, is the biggest, biggest learning from those three? <sighs>
1: I that mean, it depends who the audience is. <laughs> you know, if I'm talking to athletes, it's that people care more than you think, generally. There are some bad out. Al- There's always bad out. Al- but generally people really care and they really care about you and they're trying doesn't mean it's all right. And it doesn't mean when stuff isn't fair, it's, it it's, you know, all of that's totally legit. And you're, you're generally totally right to feel the way you do. But I think it, you know, if it helps at all, people are trying and mm-hmm. overworked. If I'm speaking to sport admins, it's, you know, have compassion for the athletes and then recognize that luck plays a bigger role than we think it does and that, that athlete who's the superstar is the superstar now because of a series of events that they were lucky enough to take advantage of along the way. I certainly was absolutely. You know, if I hadn't been dyslexic, would I have been? Uh, would I have won an Olympic medal? Probably not. You know, I, I just don't think I would have been as committed to sport. Something else would have attracted me to it. And mm. you know, the other to people making decisions about teams and that is take a step back. And the best ones do this already. The best HPDs and things like that do this already. I think, but you know, just you're not smarter than the the results of the event, <laughs> and don't try to outsmart uh, outsmart a race. You never will. You'll always lose. It's like it's like trying to outsmart the casino. Eventually, you're gonna lose. Yeah. Uh, let the races, let the athletes speak for themselves through their through their performance, and um, set it up to be as fair as possible. I always think. You, the most efficient sports system in the world is one where we get as many athletes as we can in it and they all have an equal chance to succeed. It's impossible. It would cost too much. But if you keep that in mind, and like you said, there's probably someone else out there that's more talented than you are at your sport. And they just haven't had the chance to either, you know, they haven't had the luck along the way or they haven't had the chance to even try the sport, frankly. Hmm. So if we want to win medals over the long term, that's gotta be the way is to get more people in there and more people trying and more people falling in love with sport, absolutely. A lot of rambling there, but it's a its a tough one and I spend too much time thinking about it, I think. Uh, and I, I think some of the solutions are relatively easy around transparent criteria. Some of them are super hard around people are overworked. Uh, a lot of people are really underpaid, I think, mm. for the amount of responsibility they have. And um, yeah, anyway.
0: No, that's that's it resonates with me because I think I heard something the other day and I forget where. So kudos to whoever said this. Essentially they were speaking on what you're speaking about. It's like equal opportunity doesn't necessarily mean equal outcome, but if everybody at least has equal opportunity to potentially have that outcome, then at the end of the day, you know, it's not as bad as only one only one section or one segment getting all the opportunity versus another one getting absolutely none or or having to fight for it in some way. Exactly, exactly.
1: And I couldn't, like, again, how much are we spending on the best people getting something that might give them a 1% gain, which is a ton, a 1%. And in your world, Sprinter, like, that's ridiculously huge, a 1% gain. But at the same time, that is undone by, like, yeah, a butterfly hitting your eye in the middle of the run, you know, versus... Like, I just think back to the medals that we won in my event. We won one in Sydney. Uh, we didn't win one in 2004, but we're super close. And then Beijing and, and London. And that was because there were like three, four guys that were constantly pushing each other that were all basically the same speed. Mm. And that's your, that's your dream system. But even then, like, so Mark was better than me in most of the trials, or we'd be close to trials and then World Cups between oh four and oh eight. But he would get more stuff. You know, it would be more, which never really bothered me because I just, it it was stuff I wasn't interested in, but for sure he was getting more money directed at him. And that's, again, no knock on Mark. He's a good, he's a great guy. He's a good friend, but that was just the reality of it. And in hindsight, that's just so stupid. (laughs) You know, like if you were designing a system, you just wouldn't do that. If he can buy this stuff or he's got sponsors, go for it, whatever, that's a different thing. But as a publicly funded system, doubling down on this kind of stuff, just doesn't make sense. It makes more sense to invest it further down the pathway and, you know, make sure we've got, you know, we're healthy and blah, 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 all that stuff. But uh, yeah, anyway, I find it fascinating. It's it's a really interesting problem. And the, and the issue with it is it's hard. It's hard to do that, to take a step back and think we could do this for this person. That's a concrete action looks good in a board report looks good in a news story. You know, uh, it's a no lose situation for me, the decision maker and it's a lot harder to make the argument to invest in some youth program somewhere uh, and say in 10 years this is going to pay dividends you know uh, that's a lot harder to make um, mm. and it requires a pretty fundamental shift but I, the system is shifting to be fair i think a lot of people are are um, realizing that we've got to do more at the bottom end
0: you've been able to like work with a lot of athletes who are transitioning from their sport and like they, like we mentioned into the quote unquote real world, what do you think is the one thing that athletes struggle with? Number one, and then for yourself, when you were transitioning, what do you think was the biggest thing that you struggled with that if you were to go back and change or maybe tell yourself, what are those two things? Yeah,
1: yeah. The one thing for most, I think a lot of athletes is, again, we talked about it earlier, but sports very, you know, you have this, this was the program discussion we just had, where we had a couple of minutes ago. Sport is very, you know what's going to happen and, and real life is a gray zone. So sports pretty, you know, you win or you lose. Uh, it's pretty straightforward and you show up and you you know what you have to do. And yes, there's some issues, but generally you know what you have to do. Yeah. And the rest of life is just not like that. Absolutely not. like that. And you get a job and you're like, do I, is this right? And, you know, I think that that is a huge piece of it. And, and school too is right or wrong. And then all of a sudden, again, and I think a lot of people go through this and it's something we should think more about. So, you know, when they transition or when athletes transition into the real world, one of the advisors, Sophie Brassard in Quebec, will say you know they want to be told what to do where to do it and when to do it and if they're given that information they'll do it better than anyone on the planet <laughs> but but they need you know they want this they want everything organized for them when in reality it's all a gray area and what athletes don't recognize is the skills we do learn about just doing stuff like okay I'm going to do this you this is what I should do to be better something like this okay boom I'm going to do it like that's a superpower in the corporate world. Smith School of Business, one of the partners of, of game plan, you know, they have athletes in their programs for that reason alone, because like it's all team-based stuff. And you've got brilliant people. Like the team I'm on, I'm blown away by how smart everyone is. And they're all really good. I have a I have a wonderful team. So they're a bad example. But let's pretend <laughs> they had trouble like just pulling the trigger and, and doing something. And they don't, but let's pretend they did. I'd be good at that. I'd just be, yeah, let's just do this. And athletes really do bring that to the workplace and to life in general. And they don't recognize that among all sorts of other skills. Athletes want to be told how to be better. We are comfortable being told that we're bad at something. You know, one of the things that I recognize about myself at work is that I'm constantly trying to improve. And it's just natural to me. It's like, if I can read a book that'll make me 1% better, I'm going to read the book because yeah. why would I not be 1% better? Yeah. And if it's a terrible book, which a lot of those books are, I'm They're still going gonna gonna it. to read it. Yeah, yeah. Read it. <laughs> yeah, man. And it's fascinating to me that people don't work like that, but m- the majority of people I don't think think like that. And that's something that sport gives us. So athletes don't recognize that they've got this power. They also feel like because they haven't done anything uh, that they don't fit in in the workplace mm. and all the rest, but, You know, again, Smith School of Business is really good with this. Queens will talk about the soft skills that athletes bring. And it's those soft skills that are worth their weight in gold in the job place. Coachable, not afraid to fail, not afraid to just try something. Those are the biggest ones. But then also just constantly trying to improve, looking for problems. I think the one, you know, drawback that athletes have is the rules don't apply thing. Like to try to go to the Olympics, the rules don't apply to you, right? This is something in my head that I think a lot of athletes like, okay, those are the rules. Great. I'm going to break them and I'm going to get there. And it's not, I'm not cheating, but it's like the rules don't apply. And and you see that a lot. And sometimes that can hinder people like when they have to meet with HR and and understand, you know, there are vacation days for a reason. And so that was a big learning for me. Uh, Yeah. Yeah.
0: I can relate to that last one. That's like, that's like that's like me to a T it's like, Hmm. Okay. So yeah. this is the way everybody else is doing it great? Yeah. I'm not going to do it that way. <laughs> yeah, 100.
1: <100%. laughs> percent And that's what makes us, you know, good athletes. And it generally makes you a really good employee. But you, there are certain rules, and you just have to respect. You know, you got to respect HR and work with them, <laughs> and and all that stuff. So, I, so again, for athletes, I think the biggest thing is the gray. Just how gray it is, and and frankly, my personal thing, which I think affects a lot of people too was it just wasn't, you know, I didn't see it as fun. And mm. sport was so much fun. My training camps were so much fun. I, I just like, it was simple. You know, I trained my ass off. Between training, I'd read a book. Like, you know, it was just simple. It was great. I didn't make any money, but it was fun. <laughs> and I think you get into life and you're doing a nine to five. And I just remember I had a great job. This was at not Loved my job. but my back started to hurt, like everything started to hurt. And yeah, I had to do my eight hours a day and, and I couldn't complain again. It was a wonderful place, but it was just such a mind shift for me. And it was, yeah, it was just, it was, it was challenging. And then it just doesn't feel as fulfilling. Like the goals aren't as clear and the things aren't as clear along the way. And that can be really upsetting for people. But honestly, the, the thing that's helped me the most And that I've really begun to understand recently was that it, you find other beautiful things in life that give you that joy. And like sport was great, but there's a lot of, it's hard and all the rest, but I can find that fun in other ways. You just have to be perceptive to it. So as opposed to all these peaks and valleys of sport, which is a bit of a rush and you know, you get addicted to that. It's just. Finding kind of the beauty in the everyday and, and some of the fun things you can do along the way with your friends. And it took a long time for me to recognize that. And when I did find it, it's, it's really transformed my life in a really positive way. Like I, you know, I wrote about this, I forget when the games are over in the Walrus was the one where I talked about mental health and drinking too much and things like that. And part of that was just chasing excitement, you know, uh, trying to find something that was fun and not finding it and feeling disappointed and wanting more and wanting more, not recognizing that what I had was incredible and I was so fortunate. And, um, and in hindsight, you know, that, that lesson for me has, has really rung true. And I think a lot of athletes would do well to just take a beat and, you know talk to somebody yeah and then think about the gratitude and try to be objective about your life not looking at other people too much and what they're doing and all the rest like i was a 30 year old intern reporting to someone younger than me she's brilliant she was lovely she's brilliant but you know i had to eat my ego in a big way i was here. i was an olympic bronze medalist but yeah you're an editorial intern and you're writing crap i don't care that you, you great your medal's lovely that's cool Yeah. (laughs) Great. Now write this (laughs) and it's garbage. And, uh, you know, I was okay with that because I'd had to get help my whole life with school and things like that. So I'm used to it, but that's a mind shift. That's a big mind shift and Mm -hmm. people need to be open to that. So, yeah.
0: How did you recognize those other kind of beautiful things about life? How did you find those or how would you recommend to an athlete to find those things for themselves?
1: Part of it is just time needs to go by and, and you have to mature. Some people have it right away and that's fine. But for me, time played a role. The mistakes I made, um, I'm, so I'm not answering your question directly, but it's hard. This, the mistakes I made were I certainly drank too much and partied too much. Like I didn't have enough structure in my life. Absolutely. Mm. Just not, not nearly enough. And I thought I had a plan and it was like organized. And if anyone reads that, they can see that. That that was part of it. I was pretty organized. I thought I knew what I wanted, and everything was going to be. But no. And then I didn't talk to anyone. Like I should have way earlier on. I just didn't. Re- and it's very hard to do this, and it and, and it's no one's fault but my own, really. But I just did not recognize the place I was in, and that it really wasn't healthy. And so you know the the changes I would make then, like I said, I would have partied less, I would have drunk less, and. It's not that those times weren't great and that my time with my friends wasn't great, but it wasn't healthy. And it wasn't what I needed as like a guy in his mid-30s who needed to get on with life and was was not getting on with life in the right way. And so, you know, and I was functional. I was doing really great at great work and everything was great. But my private life was or my private, my very private life where I'm alone at, at night was really not a great spot. So I think back often to what I would change and it would, you know, being kinder to myself, having more gratitude, having more time, but honestly the thing that probably would have been just talking to someone and recognizing that I was, I was in a bad spot. And I had left my, my family and my partner at the time, you know, to move to Ottawa to go to school. And I was with good friends, great guys. And none of this is their fault. They didn't know me enough to know that I was kind of off the rails and and again, we're still super close and they'll listen to this and make fun of me for it. But they, you know, they did not, they did not, and it's not on them, but had I been at home, you know, and and my mom or my sister or someone or my brother, or whatever, my regular friends might have been like, Tom, this is weird, man. You're this is this is not right. You're you're being a bit different than than normal. And are you okay? Would have come up more often. So that's mm. again, that's just the reality of it. So what I would recommend for athletes is be proactive and do some digging while you're still in sport. Honestly, the game plan stuff is designed to make you a better athlete. It was born of the 2010 Olympics explicitly to get worrying about life outside of sport off of your plate so you could be a better athlete. That was the idea. It shifted here and there, but honestly, that was the goal. And it was Mm -hmm. like, explore more options. And now athletes do have and even if you've been retired longer, you know you can talk to an advisor at least, and they'll point you in some direction. So that that stuff is is worth its weight in gold. The issue is rules don't apply, and athletes think you know I got this, or I'm special, or I'm unique, and that's great when you're an athlete, but it doesn't work in quote unquote real life, and, and is a is a dangerous spot to be.
0: Mm. Yeah, very yeah. true. Very true. Yeah, yeah. So. I'd recommend. I'll give you two more things. Sorry, no, no. Two go more, ahead. Go
1: ahead you know, I stopped drinking about two years ago. And and again, I, I i don't want to overplay this. I would just party a lot and I have a drink or two a night, but I wasn't, I would was never, never affected work or anything like that, but certainly affected my mental health. So mm-hmm. I stopped completely. I'm basically sober. I'll have a glass of wine. If someone opens a super fancy bottle of wine, I'll have half a glass and that's about it. Uh, and that has been wonderful for me. And I come from a family of alcoholics. So for those of you out there, <laughs> if you've, you know, if you've got dads and uncles who drink too much and it doesn't matter if they're functional or not just think about it 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 has been life-changing for me and also you know s- stuff like mindfulness and and trying to find some meaning like I'm not a you know I was raised a Catholic but atheist for most of my life and I've kind of found a bit of spirituality in some of the Buddhist stuff that's out there these days so mindfulness plus one kind of thing like mm-hmm. beyond the total secular sitting there but it's a self-improvement thing. If there's a way that I can be better for the people I love that involves some self-reflection, then why would I not do this? Yeah. Like, it just give me a break, you know? So I, you know, I sit on a cushion every day for half an hour and I, I read those, you know those things and try to get some inspiration out of it. I don't think there's any magic there. It's all pretty straightforward. You know, be grateful for what you have and be kind and and work on that. And the past 2 years have been some of the best years of my life. Honestly, I, you know, it's been really wonderful and I think I'm better to the people around me. I certainly try to be. So,
0: there you go. No, that's 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 really good and you're right. A lot of the stuff that you're talking about when it comes to even like bettering yourself, right? If you if you if you know you like you want to be better and and to take those steps, to do those, like you said, you know, those boring things, kind of like, why not, right? Why not do those things? Yeah, yeah, so important. For those of you listening, I actually, especially the athletes, I'd actually really recommend to go um, read that article. It's, uh, and if you don't know what the name is, you can literally just go into Google and type in Thomas Hall, 2016 article, it'll it'll pop up, (laughs) right? And it's a really good article. And it's interesting because, you know, and this is an interesting timeline, because I think that article came out actually wrote it down here because it was it was pretty interesting. And I just wanted you to, to kind of know this from somebody on the outside. Obviously, it's had an effect on me. So it's, it's uh, again, it's a pretty full circle moment. But this article came out, I believe, on the 20... Sorry, the game is finished on the 21st of August. And the article came out on the 22nd. I read this article when I got home about two days later on the 24th uh, or the 25th or the three days later. So on the 25th of August. And I'll, I'll never forget it because I remember it. I'm like, this is crazy. I think, too, for me, because I was at the moment, I, I just finished 2016, right? And I was kind of thinking about, okay, you know, am I going to do this again and all that stuff? And so I think I was, in a way, kind of, you know, searching for something like well, what was yeah. happening. And the article came out and I read it. And I'm like, wow, this is nuts, right? Like, <laughs> first off, that, like, I think everything that you went through, I'm like, this is, that's like incredible. And then um, just too, like, yeah, I think it really made me think in that moment of like, okay, like you mentioned, like the rules, we I think we always think that the rules don't apply to us, right? And so thinking that something like this couldn't potentially happen to me if I wasn't careful, thing kind of really made me like kind of wake up and in a sense to be like, okay, this is somebody telling their experience of what happened, probably in hopes that it doesn't happen to somebody else at the very yeah, least. exactly that right? was the goal. And so, like, first off, I I thank you. I I think <laughs> uh, like no, because because I, yeah. I think there's this thing where, like um you know, that's going around like kind of giving people their flowers while they're still alive. And so I'll, I want to give you some yeah. of yours, um, you Thanks, know, because I, I, uh, I appreciate it. I, think it. I think it really woke me up and it made me really think about a lot. And especially about eventually, because I'm not going to be, I can't run forever and, and I don't want to. Right. And so um, <laughs> and so I thought that the article, again, it's a really powerful article. It made me think about a lot. I also started to make me kind of, I don't want to say stalk you, but like just kind of follow what you are kind of doing, <laughs> you know, kind of just out there. So that's why this yeah. is a really cool moment for me to kind of be sitting with you now and chatting and, and talking because, you know, it's almost like, what, four years, almost five years now, I guess, removed yeah. from, from that moment. So uh, pretty, pretty cool for me. That was a really selfish moment there for me, everybody. But um sorry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, thought so, but I remember meeting you in Rio. I was in the athlete lounge in Rio. I was I was working in Rio. I was a volunteer. Yeah, at the Canada Olympic House. Committee yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, it was great It was tons of fun it was that was way more fun than being an athlete like <laughs> way more fun if you ever can go and volunteer at the games um and I remember meeting you yeah lining you up for yeah. uh, for the end of the yeah yeah oh, it's, uh, well I appreciate that and you know that I wrote that article I pushed send on it to the editor who was lovely uh to help me get that tell that story and I bookended those games. I should say this: I bookended those games with two articles on the opening ceremonies, which I didn't want to happen. A story came out that was pretty critical of our funding system and how, how sports operated. And then I ended with that one. And I remember sitting in Canada House, writing bits of it and crying. And you know, the, the, the journalist in me at that point was like, "Well, this is going to be good because <laughs> you're crying. Other people, you know, that means you're feeling it." Uh, but yeah, I hit send and. Um, and then when it went out there, I, I didn't read it for a long time, but I did, you know, the messages that I got were really wonderful. And, and I realized after sending that, just how many people, you know, were hurting or had experienced something similar. And there's a lot of military in there that wrote to me and other mm. athletes, of course, and through game plan, I've seen it too. And it's, it's sad because we can do better as a system where, where that doesn't happen, but the goal was to help other people. And so I'm, I'm thrilled that it. It scared you into <laughs> it. Scared you into uh, you know thinking about it. That honestly, that was it. So I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah,
0: thanks. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. I, I'll never forget because I read it, and then I remember on my and this is something that's just in my mind. Driving to the track, are you in Ottawa? You, yeah, yeah. So you know how you're coming down, you know Riverside, and that there's kind of like that hill that you go up, and you're coming down to the intersection between. I think it's it's, it's Hunt Club and, and Riverside. Wait, no. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Where the where the Canada post is, yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And so I'm 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 driving down and I, and the light turns red and I stop and like just the article was just playing in my mind. I'm like holy, like I was just, I was just <laughs> thinking about everything that you. I'm like this, like what the heck? And that was it. I, I'll never forget it. Like that moment is stuck in my mind because it just it really made me just like stop and be like, dude, like get yourself together here a little bit and like and like i said like i was kind of like going i don't know what's gonna happen i I, I don't know i was kind of right and this is like come on man like hey 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 buddy (laughs) it's time i think i think you know pull up your pants here and if you don't and you know just figure out what what you got to do right and so you know like i said i I really appreciate it that moment forever is stuck in my head and you know i think something even out of that that you mentioned was just even being able to to talk to somebody right and you know, a big issue, especially amongst athletes, even while they're still in sport, is, you know, mental health, right? Absolutely. And being able to, I mean, this past year even, right? I i, I can't imagine, um, yeah. well, I mean, I guess I can in, in a way, um, yeah. but just everything that collectively just in the world, but also like as athletes are just kind of going through with a lot of the <laughs> uncertainty, yeah. there's that word again, right? That um, is going on and for you, What's something that you've seen, I guess, from both sides of the coin now that Mm. like really, really stands out for you as something to either maybe, you know, that we should probably look into a bit more or be a bit uh, more aware of?
1: Yeah, I think on the mental health front. So, you know, through Game Plan, there is mental health support and I'll I'll talk about well, I'll talk about it now. The best way to find it is to go to the website and click on the news tab. There you will see um, Game Plan Resource Center. We've made it a news story because it's easier to get to that way. Uh, and there's a list of, you know, click on one of those things, and there's a post games planning workbook, there's a self care guide, there's um, a resource list of mental health care that you have access to. But one of the partners of Game Plans, Morning Chappelle. So it's 24 seven counseling. You just call, and I've used it, uh, and it's great. You know, you call, talk to someone. And then we also have a network of specialists, uh, psychologists. So not like your mental performance consultants, although some of them are have that too, but they understand the sport context really well. So it depends what your issue is. If it's with sport, then, you know, these people are probably better to talk to. If it's just, you know, you're confused, you're unsure, that kind of stuff, Morno is awesome. And these are all free. So <clears throat> the easiest way is to talk to your game plan advisor, um, but you can find the info on the website too. Um, so just get that out there those are that's all Canadian national team athletes have access to that this year the advisor saw uh, game plan saw something like a 300 percent increase starting in and in January like we have our graphs and you can't I guess you can't see my hands but it was basically like a hockey stick you know it was kind of same as the year before and then all of a sudden in February when the corona stuff really started to happen in North America and Canada it just shot up hmm. and It stayed up. Um, We are like way busier than we ever have been, and the advisors. I mean, it was interesting. It's gone in in ebbs and flows. The good news is, a lot of athletes were coming to the advisors saying, "Okay, well, how do I make the best of this? Season's gone. Games aren't happening this year. How can I make the best of it?" So that's really positive, resilient behavior that you want to see. Mm -hmm. Resilience. There's a myth around resilience that it's like a stoic kind of approach to stuff, where you're you tough it out or whatever. You know, like. And that's also a bad definition of stoicism, for the record. But that's another conversation. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, but but I resilience is about you know there's a there's a research out at Dalhousie University who had a great thing, and it's 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 about the, the most resilient people, the people that are most successful in a disaster are the ones who know how to ask for help and who ask for help. Hmm. And it's something along those lines. I'm for sure I'm butchering it, but I always that always resonates with me. And so to see athletes. Coming to game plan, asking for support was huge. That was really great for me and the team. It's like a, you know, an affirmation that we're providing some value. The mental health side, you know, athletes have been super resilient. That's been really great. The mental health side of things has has been up and down basically all year, but it's gradually creeping up, trending up. And I and I feel for it. like if it was two thousand eight and I was going through this, I'd be in trouble. Mm. I I just don't know. I don't know if I could have done it. Like I, I look at the athletes who are training through this and I have so much respect and admiration for them and like sympathy. I just, I feel really bad for them. They're making the best of it. And so are, so are the sport. Like, you know, kudos to the sport admin folks this year. It has been brutal for them and they are trying their hardest to plan and support. And it's been really tough. So anyway, f- for the athlete mental health stuff though, that's coming up, you know, some of it is the, why am I doing this? Is it worth it? Is it, you know, is it, does this make any sense? There's, there are a lot of other problems in the world. Do I want to be doing this? Mm -hmm. And those are really good questions to ask at any time, I think with anything, but really difficult right now. And, you know, the world is on pause in a way. And I think for an athlete who's wondering that stuff, I can't stress enough to talk to a game plan advisor and, and they will connect you with a psychologist if you need one and you'll be well taken care of there. But that is not a decision that I would recommend trying to make alone right now. Hmm. And it's easy to be rash in both directions and just put your head down and go through it. And it, or, or to say, screw it, I'm done. And, you know, I would just take a second and, and talk to someone and, and, think it through and and they're professionals at doing that that's literally part of their job. And so I can't stress enough but that is one of the things that's coming up is this uncertainty what am I doing? Um and and other stuff's coming out. I mean everyone if you had underlying anxiety about x y or z or uh, you know it's 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 way worse and it's really hard for people. My sister's a psychologist and like she's never been busier. We have a psych on the team who's yeah. never been and it's, it is evident and flowing. Like it's at, at times it's bananas and they're just full blast. And then it'll like for a, for a month, it'll be nothing. And then bang, it starts again. So, hmm. yeah. So <clears throat> I think the mental health piece is a real issue this year, obviously. And and it, there's an epi- that epidemic they've talked about the, you know, the shadow epidemic or something or shadow pandemic of mental health. And it's a real big issue. Kids not being exercised. All my friends with kids, trying to work from home like the Mm. and so and it's so easy to say this but i think everyone and athletes especially who hold themselves to such a high standards just have to be kind to themselves and take a step back and be like be kind to yourself and 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 just take a deep breath because yeah it's brutal right now and it's brutal for everyone but for the athletes focused on tokyo and nervous about beijing like yeah, it's, it's hard. And it's so easy for me to say that, but that's the only advice I have other than talk to an advisor, access the mental health support that we've got.
0: It, and it's interesting because, you know, a lot of athletes, like, you know, we're supposed to be, well, I don't, I just, yeah, I guess so. You know, we're, we're looked at as like, okay, cake, you know, you're, you're, and you're an athlete, you're an Olympian, you're, like, you're supposed to be resilient, of course. Right. And yeah. so, you know, and, and sure. Great. You know, you're doing all these things, but then it's almost like, like you said, that kind of shadow thing. There's like, okay, the leg of like the mental side of it. Because you're you're almost trying to separate the two, right? Yeah. And not and not even like work with both. And so then when that part catches up, you're like, okay, well now I gotta deal with my mind. Yeah. <laughs> I'm ignoring my mind and now I gotta deal with it right afterwards. Right. And so yeah, it, it is a it's a really um I was gonna use the word pervasive,
1: yeah.
0: but um yeah, something for sure that I think we gotta look into probably a bit a bit more.
1: This year it is,
0: and I just can't stress enough, like this it's
1: so again, it's easy to say this, but asking for help. If you just feel off, you know, like the general line is if you feel really sad or really upset or something, or just emotionally different for two weeks, you should talk to someone. I think for athletes in this world, it should be like, you know, if there's a, if a week goes by and you're just having trouble, just talk to someone the second you're having trouble because the earlier it's like an injury. It's, this is the best analogy is, is a physical analogy. How you know if your hamstrings hurting? How, how do you just train over that, or do you take care of that? You know, like you, you're <laughs> going to take care of it right away, and uh, and it's the same, you know. So if you're if and it's hard to recognize and all the rest, but it's just if you feel off, it, there's no harm, nothing can go wrong by asking for help. In my opinion, I, I can't see what would. So, um, it, but this is a particular particularly difficult time. Yeah, it's
0: it's tough. Is there anything that stands out to you when you look back that's like, you know what, if I could do this again or maybe change this moment, is there anything else that stands to you that maybe you haven't said or you're okay with it?
1: I've had to become okay with it because I think that's just, that's life. And and it's, you know, again, if your intentions are, and I'm not saying these are always my intentions, but they certainly are now. If your intentions are like to get out to the other side, you know, you're going to I've got I've got 80 years on this planet. I'm basically halfway through, let's say on average. If I can get through the next 40 without, you know, hurting as few people along the way, great. That that's about it. That's honestly I think what it boils down to for me. That's my path. I want to I want to help as many people as I can and hurt as few people as I can. And inevitably I'll fail the whole way through, but I really am committed to to trying to do that. So when I look back on my career with that lens, there are things I would have done differently and there's, you know, personal relationships that I would have changed or, or handled differently and things like that, but they are what they are from an athlete, if a purely athlete standpoint, <clears throat> I was always a bit of an outsider. Like, it's just, it's hard to say that, you know, I wasn't really an outsider. I always did my own thing and I was comfortable doing it. But sometimes, you know, I can remember sitting alone on a Saturday night at training camp and the next day's off and I'd order like a steak from the Texas Roadhouse. And I'd be sitting there watching a crappy movie by myself and everyone was at the bar or something doing that. And I did that, A, because I just needed my alone time sometimes. But B, sometimes, you know, if, in hindsight, I was probably scared. And I don't know why these are guys that I'd known at that point for 10 years. And we're great friends. And we'd gone through literally everything you can imagine at that point together. uh, But I just, I can remember, I look back at those moments and and there's a few throughout my life where I've made those choices and I kind of regret them. And I, what was I afraid of? And maybe, you know, maybe this is all the luck stuff. Maybe that's part of what got me to the podium, right? But um, I don't know and so i think back to those moments where i could have spent more time with people and and again i think a lot of this just comes from thinking more about what we're doing here what i'm doing here and and that the time we spend with the people around us that we care about is is all that is going to matter there's a great i mean one of the my favorite things when we coach talk to athletes around like figuring out what you want to be and what you want to do is to like what's your what's someone going to say at your funeral like it's dark but think about that And, you know, what are they going to say about you and what do you want them to say about you? Mm. And I think about that a lot. And, and, you know, I, I think about that, what I'm going to be thinking about near the end is my friends and the people I love, and that's, what's going to be sad. Mm. And, you know, so I, I regret those things a little bit, uh, where I, I chose to, to be alone and not spend time with some people I really liked and that's time I'll never get back. And, uh, Maybe it was the right choice, maybe it's what made me good, but that's that's probably it yeah,
0: hmm. yeah i can I can kind of relate to, to that yeah. a little bit, so totally yeah. get where you're coming from
1: yeah it's a balance i I need my time <laughs> let's be let's be clear i need my i gotta yeah i'm not i can be an extrovert everyone's got this introvert expert i i need to i need to take my time time for sure, but <laughs> there are there are definitely times where I made that choice out of i think insecurity and fear. Mm. And I had nothing to be afraid of because these were my friends and, uh, and I wish I, I wish I'd made different choices then.
0: In that kind of same vein, how did you eventually, I guess, learn to overcome that kind of like insecurity? Cause now you're in a spot where, I mean, you can't really avoid people at all. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, <right>? yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I, and uh, I guess I've had to become very comfortable with just being wrong. And, you know, I've, and exploring the, you know, the vulnerability and that kind of stuff. And just like, what, what do I have to lose? Uh, is mm. has been a big part of it. And it's fundamental for me. Is like, what am I holding on onto? What am I afraid of again? And, and it does come back to like, I want to be better. And so the way to be better is to be vulnerable and ask people what they think about you, but that's taken a long time. And part of it is probably in the past couple of years. And as my life has settled down and, and, been more regular and I've, I've learned to be okay with how things are. I just, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen? You know, I, I I don't know. And part of that, I got to be clear. I, I'm a upper, well, no, middle-class kid um, with a very loving family. And I think more about the way my mom and dad raised me and like the love I got, no matter what. Um, and I was a bad kid. Like I said, I was spanked and stuff (laughs) like that. I was at the time that was normal. Um, and I, my superpower, if there's anything was, is knowing that my parents love me all the time. And like, that is such a fortunate thing and that's worth its weight in gold. And, and like, so I think about how I am now and relatively comfortable being vulnerable and all that stuff. And that comes from just knowing that like, ultimately, fundamentally, you know, I'll be okay and, and it'll be okay. And that my parents will be there to love me. And even when they're gone, you know, I have my, my family's tight. My sister and brother are great. Mm. But, you know, my partner's great. My friends are great. And, and that can't be underestimated. We, you can't get out of this alone. I don't think in any real way. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So that's, that's been a big one and understanding that. And that's something I didn't know five years ago, four years ago. Um, and, uh, and it's coming to recognize that it's been really profound, I think. And, and it's painful when I see people that have a lot of trouble trusting and being open. Um, and uh, so I try to have a lot of empathy. Yeah.
0: Is there anything else that you picked up four or five years ago that you didn't know then that you, that you know now?
1: Well, I've gained, you know, certainly gained just confidence in my ability to do stuff, <laughs> you know, and again, your leave sport really good at whatever it was that you were doing for 20 years uh, but objectively bad at some other things (laughs) and uh, uh, but understanding that uh, you know I am okay at stuff and I'm not terrible and that's also really privileged and again God, white male saying this stuff uh, take it with a grain of salt I guess but it did take me some time to get there and a lot of the bad decisions I made and have and still make come I think from insecurity wanting what other people have or thinking that kind of stuff. And, and so I actively work at it. I mean, that's one of the things I've always been a reader, but actively working at thinking about who I want to be thinking about that question of what I want people to think of when they think of me, you know, what they say about me when I'm not around and not that I'm trying to manipulate anyone, but like thinking about that stuff, what my values are and and all the rest of it has, has been really transformative for me for sure. And you know, there's, there's a type of, uh, psychotherapy act acceptance and commitment therapy that's really interesting and based in the mindfulness world. And it, you know, we're, we're getting on the edges of it, but there's a book called the happiness trap. That's a solid read by I guess, Russ Harris, who's a doctor who's done that. And I just can't recommend that enough. And, it, you know, it, it works on my sister, you know, did her PhD on this with, and <clears throat> was using that practice about 20 years ago. And she was dealing with torture victims that had come from, uh, I can't remember now, but it's just, you know, the the worst stuff. And that's a whole other thing. But so for me and my, you know, my (laughs) Ottawa suburb, figuring myself out, but, but Hey, why not? You've got, we've got one kick at the can here. And so thinking about that a lot more has been something that I wish I had done earlier. Mm. I truly wish in my twenties, I had spent some time thinking about how I want to show up and Mm -hmm. how I want to be and what, what really matters to me. Uh, And it's not money and it's not stuff. And it might matter for other people, but identifying that would have made a
0: tremendous difference. Hmm. Yeah. One more question, which is everybody kind of gets this question. um, um, If you were to, to travel back in time and speak to a younger Tom, and you can only tell him one thing, what would that one thing be? And like, I'll give you a time limit here. So like you have about a minute, see, see yourself. Or you I'm done. Say,
1: all right. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, it's easy. The one thing it'll be. Okay. Hmm. That That's probably it. Why that? Well, I, cause I think it will, I I think, you know, you got to work hard and, you know, you think about how hard your teenage years are and things like that. And, but it's all, it all works out. I, if, again, I think it depends and I'm lucky and I'm speaking from a place of privilege for sure. Um, but I worked my ass off, you know, I couldn't read. I learned how to read. I wanted to be a writer. I worked my ass off to do that stuff. And I worked my ass off in sport. And so if I could go back to that kid and, and just give him the, you know, all the fear that we have and all that stuff and just say, that ah, it'll be all right. You know, do what you got to do. Keep, keep doing what you're doing and try really hard and it'll be okay. Um, I think that's, that's probably it. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Man, this has been absolutely incredible. Thanks for absolutely. taking time out of, your, out of your day to do this, man. Um, uh, again, like I can't thank you enough. Really appreciate it. Slightly selfish on my part, but <laughs> oh, not at all. it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. I up 2 hours in the
1: time. It's, a, it's a total pleasure.
0: I'm yeah, it was it was great. Um where can people find you? How can people get in contact with you now? I mean, you're not necessarily at a game plan anymore. You, you switch roles or over um, at the COC, but is there any way that people can get to contact you if they want? Yeah, I'm,
1: I'm on Twitter, Tom Hall CA. Uh, and I don't tweet much. I mean most of it's retweets or uh, but uh, I'm there. Um, I have a my website, which is kind of just a placeholder now, but it's TomHall.ca, hall uh and Instagram, when I'm on it, I've recently uh, shut my account down because I was just wasting time on it. and so I, I've, I needed to give myself a break from that. but it's also Tom Hall CA. Uh, but anyone can, you know, if anyone wants to get in touch, um, at, yeah, t hall at Olympic.ca is my email and, uh, more than happy to talk to anyone. Yeah. Um, for sure. And then writing, I do, I'm working on a book. I've written a draft and with my sister and, you know, we take some of the stuff uh, principles of act and some of this other stuff, uh, and try to apply it to athlete transition. And honestly, it just, the one sentence summary is be nice to yourself it'll be okay <laughs> that's probably it but uh you know there's some god if it ever gets published <laughs> we'll see you know it it's been many years of side of the desk stuff but hopefully that'll come out and hopefully that'll that'll
0: uh, help some people
1: um but otherwise yeah you know twitter I'm, I'm on there a lot awesome yeah
0: so if you ever want to reach out to tom you know where to find him and make sure you reach out and then also tell him that you heard him on the Inter-Olympian podcast if you're <laughs> listening on the Inter-Olympian yeah. podcast. <laughs> Definitely. Tom, has been absolutely amazing. Thanks again for taking time out of your day to, to sit down and chat with me and share some of your experiences and your learnings. It's been absolutely eye-opening, absolutely incredible. Um, I'm sure that it's going to impact a lot of people. Uh, and so I, I thank you again for taking time out of your day to, to do this. Don't
1: mention it, Shagun. It was a real pleasure, man.
0: Hey, thanks so much for listening. That's it for today's episode. For more episodes or for any details about The Inner Olympian or anything like that, you can check us out on Instagram at TheInnerOlympian.co. You can also check us out at TheInnerOlympian.com. So that's TheInnerOlympian.com. Also, if you like the show, it would mean so much to me if you would leave a comment, even review five stars as well if you have any questions comments or anything like that that you'd like to share feel free to send a message to support at the or send me a message on you know instagram facebook um you know let me know what's going on and i'll see you guys next time so until then peace